If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I would ask that you open it up to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, and, and this morning I'm going to ask you to do something slightly different. If you are using a phone this morning, might I implore you to not use your phone to read Scripture this morning? Phones are beautiful instruments. They are, are incredibly helpful in a number of ways. They are also chocked full of more distractions than you could possibly hope to tame. So if you feel led by that particular word, uh, not in scripture, this is my opinion to you, says Doug, not the Lord. Uh, I would ask maybe put the phone aside, grab one of the Bibles in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 on page 761 of that Bible. There are certain things that each generation today, anyway, looks at the generation that's coming after them and realizes that they're missing, that they lack, that they don't have the same experience as we did. I don't know when this started. Um, I think that life in the 1400s was probably life in the 1400s and not too much changed. At some point in time, there was a generation who looked back at a previous generation and said, you guys don't even have to deal with the bubonic plague anymore. Uh, but for the most part, life was kind of the same. But that's not true for us today, obviously. This is mostly wrapped up in technology. My kids don't understand what it means to have a phone tethered to the wall. They don't know what it means to look up things on MapQuest. And for the generation before me, they're like, we didn't even have MapQuest, man. So you're super lucky. And uh, most of it happens to deal with things like that. But one of the things that my children miss, and I don't think that they actually miss it, but they're, they're missing out on, is that weak break between episodes in television shows. And, and they don't have the pins and needles of sitting around waiting to figure out how this was going to resolve itself. I, I remember I was five years old, and I have a very vivid memory. I have no idea what actually the resolution to this was. I just remember that I, I watched the show Knight Rider, and Kit had been dumped into a vat of acid, and I didn't know. They, they showed a preview of the next week, and, and I, was, I was, for a whole week, I was like, is the show just going to be done? Like, I, I thought maybe the, the writers got themselves in a pickle they weren't going to be able to get themselves out of, and I, I realized now, Kit wasn't an actual person. Some of you are thinking, that's pretty hardcore for a five-year-old. Kit was a car. He wasn't a person, so just to clarify, the 80s were pretty hardcore, but not quite that hardcore, so we don't have that exactly this morning. Some, some of that drama is missing. There's less, less acid than you might want in this particular sermon this morning. But nevertheless, we do get something like that this morning. There's unfinished business in what we're talking about. If you picked up where, where we will, you might think that Jesus is just starting this talk about hypocrites again. But really what he's doing in verse 16, as we read through the end of it, is finishing a discussion that he started a while ago. He talked in the beginning of chapter 6 about avoiding hypocrisy when it comes to giving alms and, and how you help those who are less fortunate than yourself. He did the same thing with prayer, but instead of finishing out the, the three sections that he was going to do, which he ends today with fasting, he, he sort of chased a rabbit, as we like to say, and, and doing that uh, taught some very important lessons on how we were supposed to pray. So today, what we have is the resumption of that sort of triad of hypocrisy from almsgiving and prayer and now today, fasting. So we've got the, the culmination of that mixed with the sort of summation of, of everything that's going on. So we're, we're picking up where we left off. If you would, read with me to do just that. 
beginning in chapter 6, verse 16. We'll be reading through the 24th verse. Here our Lord Jesus Christ says to those who hear, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would put before you this morning is simply what Jesus is doing is a continuation. And so we're going to go through the fasting bit, but we're going to make sure that we are aware that this is just in line with what he said before. He has this brief interlude of the Lord's Prayer, but he moves pretty seamlessly on to fasting. And he says genuinely the same kind of stuff. The whole idea of this hypocrisy was, again, not the hypocrisy that we tend to think of when we look around and we call somebody a hypocrite. That is, somebody who says, you are to do this, but then they don't do that thing. That's what we consider a hypocrite. And Jesus would consider that bad, I have no doubt. But at the same time, Jesus' hypocrisy here is slightly different. What he means are people who, who do things not for the reason that they say they're doing. They're putting on an act, they're performing. And just like somebody who would perform on stage, they're doing it for the applause of the people. The audience is there. So when they pray, they pray not so much for God and not so much for themselves to be heard by God, but they are praying for them to be heard by others. Same thing with the almsgiving. Certainly, they're giving real money, and that is actually going to help people. But they are doing it in such a way that they magnify their own giving so that their response, the, the response of people who see them doing this, will be applause and you know, respect. And here he says the same thing about fasting. When you fast... These, these hypocrites want everyone to know that they're fasting. So what they're going to do is they're going to disfigure their face. They're going to not comb their hair and make themselves look disheveled. They're not going to put water on their face and wash. And they're going to look as bad and as drab as they can so that people are like, wow, Frank, it's been a rough day. And you're like, yeah, I've been fasting 72 hours, right? So they're going to they're do everything they can to get that response out of people. So that, that people will ask, why is it that you look like hot trash? And then they can respond, well, I look like hot trash because I'm super righteous, yo. And when they say that, they're getting the reward that they want from people. And Jesus is saying, not that you're supposed to go out of your way and do things that you wouldn't normally do. He's not saying, hey, I know you guys don't usually wear makeup, but if you're going to fast, make sure you wear makeup and look great. He's, he's saying, just do the things that you would regularly do. You anoint your head with oil, wash your face, and don't pretend like you're anything special. If you are fasting, then God knows that you're fasting, 
and God will see you, and God will reward you. Now, at some place in here, I think that it's important that we actually talk about fasting, because it's kind of a weird thing to lump with the other two things that Jesus is lumping it with. There's this triad of hypocrisy going on with the giving of alms or helping those who are less fortunate, and prayer, and then fasting. And fasting seems like it's the one thing in the Sesame Street way that's not like the others. The others are found writ large throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, fasting is not something that we see all the time. This has led people to question whether or not we should even fast. Many times, scholars and pastors have answered, no, we shouldn't fast. In chapter 9, Jesus is going to be asked by John's disciples, well, why, why is it that your disciples don't fast? And Jesus is going to say, in a nutshell, I'm here they shouldn't fast while I'm here. Why would they fast while I'm here? The same people would point out that the promise that Jesus gives at the end of his gospel is, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so this is not a time of fasting. As a matter of fact, the, the lasting thing that Jesus leaves us with are not specific days in which we are to fast, but actually specific times in which we are to eat. The thing that he leaves with us is the Lord's Supper. He leaves with us a feast, as it were. If you go through the book of Acts, the writings of Paul, fasting does not have the same place that prayer and that, that giving to those who are less fortunate seem to have. I think, though, that we should at least be open to it. I don't think that it's a hard, closed door. I, I'm sort of moved by a couple of things here. One, Jesus honestly could have picked just about anything else. He could have talked about hypocrisy in worship. He could have talked about hypocrisy in scripture reading. He could have talked about hypocrisy in, in the way in which we give advice or something like that. In and, and any of those ways, he could have used those examples, but he doesn't. He uses fasting. And on top of that, the fasting is lumped in then with two things we know we have to do, that Christ commands us to do. The same sort of language is used here for fasting. So if, you, if you're a preacher and, and you've read any sermons or you've heard any sermons, and I'm sure that I said this two weeks ago, when, I don't actually remember, but I, I'm pretty sure I said this, that when Jesus says, when you pray or when you give alms, the assumption is that you're doing those things. But he uses the exact same language for fasting here that he uses for those. When he says that he will be with us until the end of the age, yes, he's with us until the end of the age. But at the same time, as we've already read this morning, we are to say, come, Lord Jesus. He's with us, but he's not with us in the fullness of the way that he is standing there with the disciples. All in all, I think that what Jesus and what the New Testament has for us is that fasting is something that you can do, but not something that you're demanded to do. Whether you engage in it or not, the point of fasting is fairly straightforward and simple. You are supposed to deny yourself of perhaps something you need for life, whether that's food or water for a time, some major part of your life, something that has importance to you, not something that you're commanded to do. You can't be like, I'm fasting from parenting this week. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. My wife told me I can't do that, so uh, apparently there's laws out there. Uh, but something that, that is important, right, that, that is of worldly importance to you, you give up so that you might have sort of this, this in, in time of intense focus on God and on his kingdom. 
And what this actually does is highlight for us, I think, the real problem of the hypocrites and the perversion of what they're doing. Each one of these things, whether it's, it's the giving of alms and taking care of those who are less fortunate than us, prayer or fasting, they actually form a nice chiasm. So a chiasm is where the ends kind of match one another and we work toward the middle. It's a pretty small chiasm. There's only three things, but chiasm all the same. In, in the first one and the last one, we are denying ourselves something. We, we deny ourselves riches and wealth in order to give to those who are less fortunate to help them. In the other time, typically food, we are denying ourselves. And both of those things help to reinforce to us that we are reliant upon God for all the things that we have on this earth. That, that it is by his word alone that we live, not by food, not by money, but by the very word of God. And it's meant to reject, as it were, the things of the world and to focus us on God, which is then the brilliant middle portion of prayer, when we actually turn to God and pray. So all of these things are meant to sort of move our vision from the plane of this earth up to heaven. And then you see the brilliant perversion of what the hypocrites are doing. They're taking these things that ought to direct their attention up to heaven, and they are using them to solely and only to gain the things of the earth. They are taking that which is good, that, that directs our souls and our eyes Godward, and they are manipulating them in such a way that they get worldly good out of them. They are perverting a way of rejecting the world in order to gain the world. And I think Jesus is saying very clearly and losing their souls. Friends, you are to give, you are to pray, and you are to fast. But do so to draw near to God. Do so for the sake of others. Do so because God will reward you. But avoid this sort of leaven of the hypocrites who only do these things. And whatever spiritual thing that you're doing, whether it's, it's Bible reading, if it's prayer and, and fasting, anything that you might do that you would consider a good thing before God, do it for the sake of that good thing. Do it because God, who sees in secret, will give back to you. Do not do it to gain the respect and admiration of your fellow human beings. Secondly, we come to sort of the culmination of the thing. Jesus summarizes his examples simply by saying this, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And we are right to, in the back of our mind, have money in our head, right? Treasures brings up this idea of buried, buried boxes in the Caribbean that are full of gold blooms, but treasure and money kind of go hand in hand here. And certainly that is part of it, but remember, this is, I think, summing up the passages that we've just had. And the treasures there are not just money, but it is the admiration, the adoration, the, the affirmation of the people that are around you. It's the attaboys, the, the, the sort of uh, respect that you get from the people around you when you do these things. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, you're, you're not to want those things from human beings, but rather you are to want them from your Father, which is in heaven. The truth is, much philanthropy and, and religious practice is done for precisely the reasons that Jesus gives here. It's done so that people will applaud people. Sermons are written so that people will tell the preacher that he's done well. Money is given so that people will realize that people give. I mean, 
literally hospital wings and stadiums are named for people because they give money to them and they want their name on it. You, you've got your stadium. Congratulations. No one remembers who you are 50 years from now. How quickly such applause fades. Famous people are quickly forgotten, and those who are actually remembered only have bits and pieces of their lives remembered. They're not remembered as whole people. They're remembered for incidents, or especially when it comes to actors and things like that, for roles that they played, not who they are. And only a few famous people even get that. Cemeteries are filled with people who are unknown, whose families do not know them anymore, whose histories have have gone the way of the history of everyone else, and they're lost for eternity, known only to God. And yet, all of them, every single one of them, at some point in time, have stretched themselves to receive the applause of men, which has now faded and gone away. It has been destroyed. Moth, rust, stolen by men. And Jesus implores us, don't shrug off that impulse for admiration and affirmation. It's not bad. It's not, it's not wrong. It's just got to be rightly directed. There's something that makes sense about this. We, we live in an age when we have the ability to, to look at what happens when people are raised, both men and women, are raised without fathers. And being raised without a father ends up, sometimes it can, be, it can be not just for sin, I'm not just talking about like an empty fatherlessness where, where men are just leaving. It could be that dad died of cancer when you were really young. It, it can be any of those, but we, we have studies where people growing up without a father, that is detrimental to them, that the affirmation, the love, the help, the modeling of these things by fathers is incredibly important. And what happens is a good number of people who lack that spend the rest of their lives seeking that same thing from other people, seeking it from other authorities. Sometimes they find it in good places. A lot of times they find it in bad places. For others who have fathers who gave them this, some, some people had fathers who were neglectful, some abusive, some didn't have fathers at all. But for those who had good fathers who got this, You probably don't even recognize how helpful it has been to your life, how good it has been. Whether good or bad or in between, imagine then the importance of having this sort of affirmation, not from an earthly father, not from one who is is sinful and limited, who doesn't know all of you even if he knows a lot about you, but rather from your father who is in heaven, the father who is the creator of everything that you see, who made everything with a word, and by that same very word upholds everything in its existence. That same Father who created all of that on the day of his judgment, when he resurrects every living being, Abraham Lincoln, Genghis Khan, and you, to stand in front of his holy throne, in front of all of his angels, silences everyone so that they might look upon you and he says to you in front of everyone, well done. That same word that spoke all of them into existence, that same word that raised them from the dead, when God speaks, he sets things in place for eternity. 
that affirmation can never be removed. It is not faded. It does not go away with time. Moths and rust can't get to it. It can't be stolen from you by someone else. That affirmation is there for you from the most important being in all of creation for all time. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus highlights that where this is kept, nothing can touch. The destruction of nature symbolized by a moth. Moths here in this world can take some very important things. Clothing, as we we're going to see, was just a very basic but important thing. We might take it for granted, but for them it was essential. And, and moths just destroy it. Nature continually breaks things down. Not just nature, but time, symbolized by rust. The entropy always wins. The destruction of time, the destruction of nature, and the destruction of sin. As even human beings break in and take that which is yours, they rob you of the honor and the glory that is meant for you. But none of these things can touch the word of the Father in heaven. None of these things can touch the treasure that God has laid up for you in heaven. It is safe forever. His affirmation is a word that lasts forever and will always stand over you. Press for that word. Live for that word and treasure that word. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And Jesus says, so where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We tend to read that somewhat backwards in this weird tautology that what you love is where you put your treasure what you treasure is what you love, and we're like, yeah, I, I get that. Because that's kind of saying the same thing, both forwards and backwards. But I think Jesus means something slightly different about, by that. It, it, heart does not just mean like the seat of your emotions and feelings. It means the seat of you. It's who you are. Where your treasure is, where, what you are working for shows what country you're a citizen of. If you are working for the things of the world, then you are a person of the world. If you want the adoration of the world, then you're a person of the world. If you want the money of the world, if you want the toys of the world, then you're a person of the world. And you will go, and you will have the end that those things have in the world, which is nothing short of destruction. But if your treasure lies in heaven, if that's what you are working for, if that's what you, what you seek, if that's where you place it, then you are a citizen of heaven. You belong in heaven with them. There's an interesting, I think, example of something like this, and it comes of all places from the book of Joshua. In Joshua, at this point in time, the people have entered into the promised land, and they've taken the town of Jericho. And they took the town of Jericho by doing a very poor military strategy that God had them do to make them look foolish so that they could see that by God's good hand, he would give them all the victory. The walls of Jericho fall down, and God told them, you're not to touch any of it. All of the goods, all of the spoil, none of it is yours. It is doomed for destruction. People have a great victory. Things seem great. They go to a small town to the east, or to the west, excuse me, called Ai. Small town, Jericho is big, walled, that was hard, this should be easy, and they're routed. But they're not routed because their strategy stunk. They're not routed because they didn't have enough men on the ground. They're routed, Joshua is told, because there's sin in the camp. 
because somebody took what wasn't his. He pilfered things from Jericho and kept them for himself. And finally, through a a series of of basically casting lots, it's winnowed down to this one man. And in Joshua 7, 21, Achan confesses. He says this, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar gold weighing 50 shekels. And then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. It's like I, I kept them from you by burying them in the earth. Later on in verse 26, all Israel stoned him with stones. And then it says they burned them with fire, which isn't just the bodies, but it's the treasure as well. They took all of the treasure and all the people and they gave them a common burial. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. He went where he hid his treasure. Buried, destroyed, with the things of the earth. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be something of a caution, but that does bring us to two more cautions that Jesus gives us as we finish up this morning. Third point is caution. The first one, verses 22 and 23, is a bit difficult to decipher. Jesus sometimes uses metaphors and parables that are hard to understand, and he does this, as we'll see in just a second, to be purposefully keeping people in the dark. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. At least I don't think that it's the case here. The rest of the sermon is kind of crystal clear and straight to the point, and Jesus isn't, isn't saying anything that has that sort of hidden quality to it. So I think that we should understand that this should be understandable to us and pretty quickly. And most of the time that this is tried, people try to understand this, it has to do with which direction the light is going, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But we typically think of light as traveling in one direction, and that is into our eye. You know, unless you're Sauron, light usually doesn't come out. So we, we consider that it's mostly light going into your eye. And what he's saying here then is, the way we think is, if, if light goes into your eye, then it lightens up your body. Right. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's other ancient Near Eastern customs that talk about light kind of going out of the eyes. And what that means is like, your eyes are kind of the windows to the soul. So if you were just to like put a black bar on people's faces and look at their eyes, eyes have a great deal of expression in them. You can tell if somebody's happy, upset. You can tell if they're confused just by looking at a picture of their eyes. I think both of these things sort of miss the mark of what's going on. The problem with the way in which we tend to come to this is we, we read this and we're like, the eye is the lamp. And we know that that's That's a metaphor, but we think that the lamp is really the only metaphor, and we're trying to figure out how the physical eye works. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at. Eyes are used elsewhere, not so much as a physical representation of the thing that you see with, but as your perception of the world around you. And speaking of those parables, Jesus uses that in a parable to explain why it is that those parables are so difficult to understand. His disciples are asking about it. In Matthew 13, he's giving a bunch of these parables back to back to back, and the disciples are like, I, just 
can you help us a second? Because some of these things are quite opaque. We don't, we don't get what you're saying. So Jesus is explaining why it is that he's speaking to people in parables. And he says this in verse 15. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So he's saying, they, they can't see, they're blind, because if they saw, they would understand what I'm saying, and they would turn. But blessed are you, blessed are your eyes, excuse me, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. This is how we also use this idea of seeing, right? We even talk about a light bulb going off. You don't understand something, you're working through it, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off, and you say, ah, I see, I get it. I think that's partly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you have an eye that's healthy, that's whole, that that works, that does what it ought to do, then you you are able to rightly see reality around you. That unlike these hypocrites who only see the reality of the world in front of them, they might confess that they know God. They might think that they know God. They might talk about the kingdom of heaven, but they don't, they don't see it because if they did, they would act like this. And what he's saying is if your eye is healthy, if it works right, it is a lamp for the body. It it allows your body, your vision is rightly attuned to the fact that God's kingdom is real, it's true, that God acts exactly like this, that he sees in secret, that he rewards those who do these kinds of things. Those who understand what I'm saying, who see reality correctly, who perceive the truth of my words. For them, their bodies become a lamp, or their bodies shine forth in light, which again is something that Jesus has used already. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This little metaphor, I think, is saying this, then, If you really honestly understand what Jesus is saying here, if you buy into the reality that Jesus is placing before you, if you get it, then even in the fact that you're trying to keep your good to yourself, even in the fact that you're you're quite clearly working with the intention, you're going to do these things publicly at times, people might know that you're fasting at times, people certainly will hear you praying at times, your giving cannot always be in secret, but when it's known... If you make it clear that your intention is not to be applauded by men, it's not to have have the parade going around the block for the goodness of who you are, then, Jesus says, are you a lamp to the world? Then will people see your good works, and only then will people see your good works and give praise and honor to your glory and, and glory to God who is in heaven. But the corollary to that is, unfortunately, that if you're living in this way, if you, if you don't see the reality that Jesus is talking about, if you somehow miss some facet of who God is, that you think that God doesn't care about all of the little things that you do, that he isn't seeing in secret, or he can't see in secret, or that God doesn't reward people who do good, that even worse, this world that we live in is all that we get. 
If you live like that, then all of your goodness, all that you can do, all of the nice works that you do out in the world, all of them, all piled together, are still complete darkness. And if all of your good adds up to darkness, how dark it must be. The second caution comes in verses 20, just one verse, in verse 24. It is a well-known aphorism about God and money. And I think Jesus is saying something along the same lines. saying it slightly differently, but the point is kind of the same. You will not be able to serve two masters. It's not about the practicality of serving two masters. It's not like he's saying it's going to be hard to hold down two jobs if your shift is scheduled at the same time for both of them, right? It's It's not a matter of practicality. It's a matter of devotion. There's something about this sort of mutual exclusivity between God and money. God makes demands on money, and money just as clearly makes demands upon your God. And you can't serve both of them because you're, you eventually have to side with one of them. You have to, have to do one, serve one rightly, love the one and despise the other. You can't do both. You can't serve both God and money. You cannot somehow bow to the demands of money and think that you can still serve God. So the question that comes before us is, is exactly the same as the question that was before you before. Do you understand the reality that Jesus is portraying for you? Do you understand the futility of this world? Do you understand the greatness of what heaven has for you? Do you actually trust that you can get rid of all of your things here? That, that you don't need them. Even if they're good to have, you don't need them. That you can give freely of your money, of your time, of your efforts. You don't have to have the applause of people who are here. If you, if you really truly believe that, you can leave this behind and know that you have everything that you need from God. Do you still serve money? It's not that we can do without money. It's not that we shouldn't, you know, consider money when we're making decisions. We obviously cannot go anywhere we want. We cannot do anything we want. We cannot have anything we want. Certain people presumably can. I don't think that those people exist in this room. All of us are limited by money. But that's not really the question. The question is, does your love of money hinder the way you serve God? If God was to call you to something crazy, if he was to call you to go down to Hamtramck or call you to go to someplace in Africa or cause you to go to any sort of overseas mission, if he was to do that, there would be a number of things that you would do. You might say, I don't trust myself. I don't trust that, that I'm rightly understanding the will of God here, so I'm going to go. I'm going to ask brothers and sisters, to pray. I'm going to ask God to, to make sure that this is clear. I'm going to ask for his, his pressure to be on my life, to give me a yes or no answer on this, and, and ask for clarity. And all of that's good and right and true. But when all of it's done, if you think, yeah, but financially that's crazy and stupid, I would never do that. I've had people talk about, you know, going onto the mission field for a couple of years 
Like we talk about students before they go to college, going on the mission field for a couple of years. And the response from a lot of people is, yeah, but what's that going to do to their college career? How, how is that going to impact the money that they're going to make in the future? Well, who cares? Can God take care of you? Do you say no to God because of considerations of money? Does God continually put opportunities for generosity in front of you? And if he does that, do you walk through them faithfully? Are you generous with your money? Or do you always feel that stinge of, I, I, need, to, mm, I, need, to, I need to keep this. I'm, I'm insecure without that money here. I need to keep this. And I understand it. There's no hard and fast rules. I'm not trying to convict you to give away everything you have and to live in a tent outside my house. Really, I don't want that. But nevertheless, I, I think that you, you have to search your souls to see how much you actually serve money and how much money is serving you in your service to God. Those are questions that I simply cannot answer for you. There are no hard and fast rules as to what we're to do. But those are questions that you must put forward to yourself. Do you serve God or do you serve money? Overall, I think people in general, and at least Americans, are not people who are prone to save. Investing is an incredibly hard thing. And putting off our own consumption for a latter time is difficult, whether it's food or whether it's money. Studies about the financial state of Americans would say that at best, and I do mean at best, there's some wiggle room upward from here, but almost none downward from here, that over 40% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. And that's not $1,000 in their checking account. That is $1,000 in retirement, 401k, all of it put together. 40% of Americans. Now, a lot of that is due, I understand, to poverty. A lot of that is due to the difficulty of living week by week. But on top of that, the average household in America has $14,000 worth of credit card debt. So we're beyond, like, there's, there's levels going on here. Level one is, you are Popeye's friend, I think, Blimpy, who says, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, right? You're not, you're not spending today's money you're spending tomorrow's money today. Once you get past that, you might say, well, I'm going to stop going into debt, spending tomorrow's money for today. And then you're going to say, well, I'm just going to be content with what I make today. I'm going to spend today's money today. That's level two. And level three is like, no, I'm, I'm not going to spend all of my money today so that I can save for tomorrow. Level one to level two is tough. Level two to level three is tougher. Jesus here is like on level 10,000. He's saying, listen, spend your time and your effort not rolling your money and your investment into something that you can see. You're not going to get statements from God about how much treasure you're saving up. It's an invisible kingdom with an invisible God with an account balance that you never get to see and with funds that you don't get to tap into until you're dead. Like, it takes an incredible amount of faith to push for this. 
And yet, Jesus seems to actually mean it. And he thinks that people are going to buy into it. It sounds crazy and hard and unlike something that we would do on our own, but the promise is there and his promise is good. And we know that his promise is good. Not because we simply trust who he is, but because he walked this. Jesus gave everything he had to the will of God. He, he believed that God would do exactly the thing that he said he would do. That the promise of God was real and true for him. That he could not just give away all of his rights and entitlements, but that he could give away his very life, knowing that God would sit, judge rightly, and pay to each as he is due. And because Jesus was never due death, raise him from the grave again. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he has not done. And what's more, Jesus shows you the end results of it so that you might all the more seek to live the way that Jesus has called you to live. He hasn't left you without proof. He hasn't left you without example. Jesus does all of this so that you and I can reap his rewards, not only walking as an example, but dying so that you can have forgiveness. Dying so that the debt that you owed to God, which is more than $14,000 a day, can be fully and utterly paid by the work of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is yours. Salvation is yours. If you trust in that God, if you trust in the word of Christ who says, I have forgiven you, I have remade you, trust him with everything in your life. Trusting in him, we get his life, we get his inheritance, we get all of those things, presence, peace, comfort, his victory, his reward, we get all of those encased for us in heaven where rust can't break it down, where moth can't eat through it, where no thieves can break in and steal. As Jim Elliot wisely said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Now, Elliot said that about his life. Jesus isn't even here asking you for your life. Don't be a fool. Wisely seek to hear, know, and act out the words of Jesus Christ. Trust in him, not just for salvation, but for everything in your life. And trust that he will pay you back and more than you can imagine. For he is good, he is glorious, he is rich, and he is giving. Trust in him, not in this world. Let us pray. Father, what is required out of us takes great faith. This world with all that glitters in it seems to our eyes like such a good bet, such a sure thing. Your kingdom at times seems far away, removed from us, and at times just too good to be true. Forgive us when such things overwhelm us, when temptation in this world gets the better of us and help us to be faithful forever before you. Let us hear your word, accept it fully, and bend our lives to its truth. We ask this, that we might be the very light of the world you have called us to be. We pray these things. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would, stand and sing our song of response. Take my life and let it be consecrated.